Chapter 5 of Frostiana. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Northern Winters. Fair winter armed with terrors here unknown, sits absolute on his unshaken throne, piles up his stores amid the frozen waste, and bids the mountains he has built stand fast, beckons the legions of his storms away from happier scenes to make the land a prey, proclaims the soil a conquest he has won, and scorns to share it with the distant sun. Cooper Before we describe the severity of foreign climes, we cannot do better than quote the following passage of the great Johnson, which we recommend to the serious attention of our readers. A native of England, pinched with the frost of December, may lessen his affection for his own country by suffering his imagination to wander in the vales of Asia, and sport among woods that are always green, and streams that always murmur, but if he turns his thoughts towards the polar regions and considers the nations to whom a great portion of the year is darkness and who are condemned to pass weeks and months amid mountains of snow he will soon recover his tranquillity and while he stirs his fire or throws his cloak about him reflect how much he owes to providence that he is not placed in greenland or siberia a winter in stockholm the snow that begins to fall in the later weeks of autumn covers and hides the streets for the space of six months and renders them more pleasant and convenient than they are in summer or autumn, at which seasons, partly on account of the pavement and partly on account of the dirt, they are often almost impassable. One layer of snow on another, hardened by the frost, forms a surface more equal and agreeable to walk on, which is sometimes raised more than a yard above the stones of the street. You are no longer stunned by the irksome noise of carriage wheels, but this is exchanged for the tinkling of little bells with which they deck their horses before the sledges. The only wheels now to be seen in Stockholm, says a Cherby, are those of small carts employed by men-servants of families to fetch water from the pump in a cask. This compound of cart and cask always struck me as a very curious and extraordinary object, insomuch that I have taken the trouble of following it, in order to have a nearer view of the whimsical robe in which the frost had invested it, and particularly of the variegated and fantastical drapery in which the wheels were covered and adorned. This vehicle, with all its appurtenances, afforded to a native of Italy a very singular spectacle. The horse was wrapped up, as it seemed, in a mantle of white down, which under his breast and belly were fringed with points and tufts of ice. Stalactital ornaments of the same kind, some of them to the length of a foot, were also attached to his nose and mouth. The servant that attended the cart had on a frock, which was encrusted with a solid mass of ice. His eyebrows and hair jingled with icicles, which were formed by the action of the frost on his breath and perspiration. Sometimes the water in the pump was frozen, so that it became necessary to melt it by the injection of a red-hot bar of iron. Neither men nor women carry anything on their heads or shoulders, but employ small sledges which they push on before them. When they come to a declivity, they rest with their left hip and thigh on the sledge, and glide down to the bottom with a velocity which to a stranger appear both astonishing and frightful, guiding all the way the motion of the sledge with their right foot. The address with which they perform this, it is not easy for anyone to conceive who has not witnessed it. If you add to the objects which I have been describing the curious appearance of many different palaces that are worn with the furs on the outside, you will imagine what a striking scene the streets of Stockholm in winter present to a foreigner especially to one that came from the southern part of Europe. Preparations for Winter in Russia On the approach of winter, the double windows are put up in all the houses, having the joints and interstices corked, and neatly pasted with the border of the paper with which the room is hung. This precaution not only protects against cold and wind, but secures a free prospect even in the depth of winter, 
as the panes of glass are thus never encrusted with ice. The outer doors, and frequently the floors under the carpets, are covered with felt. Our stoves, which from their size and construction consume indeed a great quantity of wood, produce a temperature in the most spacious apartments and public halls, which annihilates all thoughts of winter. On leaving the room we arm ourselves still more seriously against the severity of the cold. Caps, furs, boots lined with flannel and a muff make up the winter dress. It is diverting to see the colossal cases in the antechamber out of which in a few minutes the most elegant bow are unfolded. The common Russian cares only about warm wrappers for his legs and feet. Provided with a plain sheepskin shoe, the drivers and itinerant tradesmen frequent the streets all day with their bare necks and frozen beards. In a frost of five and twenty degrees it is common to see women standing for hours together rinsing their linen through holes in the ice of the canals. The winter increases the necessaries of life, and they are multiplied by luxury. To these belong the winter clothing, fuel, and candles. That people here run into great expenses in the article of furs may be well imagined, and the fashion varies so often that a man must be in more than moderate circumstances to be able to follow it. The consumption of wood is enormous. In the kitchens, bagnos, and servants' rooms, which are heated like bagnos, there is an incredible waste of this prime necessary of life in our climates. Upon a moderate computation here are annually consumed upwards of 200,000 fathoms, amounting in specie to about half a million of rubles. This formidable consumption and the rising price of wood are highly deserving of patriotic attention. The expense in tallow and wax candles is proportionately large. Throughout the long winter we live in an almost everlasting night, as our shortest day is only five hours and a half. In houses conducted on a fashionable style, the wax candles, as in England, are lighted long before dinner. Virgil's Description of a Scythian Winter Early they stall their flocks and herds, for there no grass the fields nor leaves the forest wear. The frozen earth lies buried there below, a hilly heap seven cubits deep in snow, and all the west allies of stormy Boreas blow. The sun from far peeps with a sickly face, too weak the clouds and mighty fogs to chase, when up the sky he shoots his rosy head, or in the ruddy ocean seeks his bed. Swift rivers are with sudden ice constrained, and studded wheels are on its back sustained. A hostry now for wagons which before tall ships of burden on its bosom bore. The brazen cauldrons with their frost are flawed, the garment stiff with ice at hearths is thawed. With axes first they cleave the wine, and thence, by weight, the solid portions they dispense. From locks uncombed and from the frozen beard, long icicles depend, and crackling sounds are heard. Meantime, perpetual sleet and driving snow obscure the skies and hang on herds below. The starving cattle perish in their stalls, huge oxen stand enclosed in wintry walls. Of snow congealed, whole herds are buried there of mighty stags, and scarce their horns appear. The dexterous huntsman wounds not there afar, with shafts or darts, and makes a distant war, with dogs or pitches toils to stop their flight, but close engages in unequal fight. And while they strive in vain to make their way, through hills of snow and pitifully bray, assaults with dint of sword or pointed spears, and homeward on his back the joyful burden bears. The men to subterranean caves retire, Secure from cold, and crowd the cheerful fire. With trunks of elms and oaks the hearth they load, Nor tempt the inclemency of heaven abroad. Their jovial nights in frolic and in play They pass to drive the tedious hours away, And their cold stomachs with crowned goblets cheer Of windy cider and of balmy beer. Such are the cold raffian race, and such, 
the savage Scythian and the German Dutch, where skins of beasts the rude barbarians wear, the spoils of foxes and the furry bear. Curious description of a Russian winter in 1603. The country differeth very much from itself by reason of the year, so that a man would marvel to see the great alteration and difference betwixt the winter and summer in Russia. The whole country in winter lieth under snow which falleth continually, and is sometime of a yard or two thick, but greater towards the north. The rivers and other waters are frozen up a yard or more thick, how swift or broad soever they be, and this continueth commonly for months, that is, from the beginning of November till towards the end of March, about which time the snow beginneth to melt, the sharpness whereof you may judge of by this. For that water dropped down or cast up into the air congealeth into ice before it come to the ground. In the extremity of winter, if you hold a pewter dish or pot in your hand, or any other metal, except in some chamber where the warm stones be, your fingers will freeze fast into it and draw off the skin at the parting. When you pass out of a warm room into a cold, you shall sensibly feel your breath to wax stark, and even stifling with the cold as you draw it in and out. Divers not only that travel abroad, but in the very markets and streets of their towns, are monstrously pinched and killed withal, so that you shall see many drop down in the streets, many travellers brought into the towns sitting dead and stiff in their sleds, and yet in summer time you shall see such a new hue and face of a country, the woods so fresh and so sweet, the pastures and meadows so green and well grown, and that upon the sedate, such variety of flowers, such melody of birds, especially of nightingales, that a man shall not lightly trail in a more pleasanter country, which fresh and speedy growth of the spring seemeth to proceed from the benefit of the snow, which all the winter time being spread over the whole country as a white rose, and keeping it warm from the rigour of the frost, in the springtime when the weather waxeth warm, and the sun dissolveth it into water, doeth so throughly drench and soak the ground, being of a slight and sandy mould, and then shineth so hotly upon it again, that it even forceth the herbs and plants forth in great plenty and variety, and that in a short time. As the winter season in these regions exceedeth in cold, so likewise I may say that the summer inclineth to overmuch heat, especially in the month of June, July, and August, being accounted the three chiefest months of burning heat, and yet in these places it is much warmer than the summer in England. Beautiful description of a winter at Copenhagen in a letter from A. Phillips to the Earl of Dorset. From frozen climes and endless tracts of snow, from streams which northern winds forbids to flow, what present shall the muse to Dorset bring, or how so near the pole attempt to sing? The hoary winter here conceals from sight all pleasing objects which to verse invite, the hills and dales and the delightful woods, the flowery plains and silver streaming floods, by snow disguised in bright confusion lie, and with one dazzling waste fatigue the eye. No gentle breathing breeze prepares the spring, no birds within the desert region sing. The ships unmoved the boisterous winds defy, while rattling chariots o'er the ocean fly. The vast leviathan wants room to play, and spends his waters in the face of day. The starving wolves among the main sea prowl, and to the moon in icy valleys howl. O'er many a shining league the level main, here spreads itself into a glassy plain, there solid billows of enormous size, alps of green ice in wild disorder rise. And yet but lately have I seen even here the winter in a lovely dress appear, ere yet the clouds let fall the treasured snow, or winds begun through hazy skies to blow, 
at evening a keen eastern breeze arose and the descending rain unsullied froze soon as the silent shades of night withdrew the ruddy morn disclosed at once to view the face of nature in a rich disguise and brightened every object to my eyes for every shrub and every blade of grass and every pointed thorn seemed wrought in glass in pearls and rubies rich the hawthorns show while through the ice the crimson berries glow the thick-sprung reeds which watery marshes yield seemed polished lancets in a hostile field the stag in limpid current with surprise sees crystal branches on his forehead rise the spreading oak the beech the towering pine glazed over in the freezing ether shine the frightened birds the rattling branches shun which wave and glitter in the distant sun when if a sudden gust of wind arise the brittle forest into atoms flies the crackling wood beneath the tempest bends and in a spangled shower the prospect ends or if a sudden gale the region warm and by degrees unbind the wintry charm the traveller a miry country sees and journeys sad beneath the drooping trees like some deluded peasant merlin leads through fragrant bowers and through delicious meads while here enchanted gardens to him rise and airy fabrics there attract his eyes his wandering feet the magic paths pursue and while he thinks the fair illusion true the trackless scenes disperse in fluid air and woods and wilds and thorny ways appear a tedious road the weary wretch returns and as he goes the transient vision mourns the single night of spitzbergen in the dreary regions of spitzbergen the snow exhibits phenomena not less singular than those of the ice at first it appears small and hard as the finest sand it then changes its form to that of a hexagonal shield into the shape of needles crosses sink foils and stars some plain and some serrated rays these forms depend upon the disposition of the atmosphere and in calm weather the snow coalesces and falls in clusters the single night of this dreadful country begins about the thirtieth of october the sun then sets and never appears till about the tenth of february a glimmering indeed continues some weeks after the setting of the sun then succeed clouds and thick darkness broken by the light of the moon which is as luminous as in england and during this long night shines with unfailing lustre the cold strengthens with the new year and the sun is ushered in with an unusual severity of frost by the middle of march the cheerful light grows strong the arctic foxes leave their holes and the sea-fowl resort in great multitudes to their breeding-places the sun sets no more after the fourteenth of may the distinction of day and night is then lost vast regions dreary bleak and bare there on an icy mountain's height seen only by the moon's pale light stern winter rears his giant form his robe a mist his voice a storm his frown the shivering nations fly and hid for half the year in smoky caverns lie scott in the height of summer the sun has heat enough to melt the tar on the decks of ships but from august its power declines it sets fast after the middle of september day is hardly distinguishable and by the end of october takes a long farewell of this country the days now become frozen and winter reigns triumphant earth and soil are denied to the frozen regions of spitzbergen at least the only thing which resembles soil is the grit worn from the mountains by the power of the winds or the attrition of cataracts of melted snow this indeed is assisted by the putrefied lichens of the rocks and the dung of birds brought down by the same means the composition of these islands is stone formed by the sublime hand of omnipotent power not fritted into segments transverse or perpendicular 
but cast at once into one immense and solid mass. A mountain throughout is but a single stone destitute of fissures, except in places cracked by the irresistible power of frost, which often causes lapses attended by a noise like thunder, and scattering over the bases rude and extensive ruins. The valleys, or rather glens, of this country are filled with eternal ice or snow. They are totally inaccessible and known only by the divided course of the mountains or where they terminate in the icebergs or glaciers we have already described. No stream waters their dreary bottoms, and even springs are denied. The mariners are indebted for fresh water solely to the periodical cataracts of melted snow in the short season of summer, or to pools in the middle of the vast fields of ice. Yet, even here, Flora deigns to make a short visit and to scatter a scanty stock over the bases of the hills. Her efforts never rise above a few humble herbs which shoot, flower, and seed in the short warmth of June and July, and then wither into rest until the succeeding year. Among these, however, the salubrious scurvy grass, the resource of distempered frames, is providentially most abundant. Such, after all, is the aspect of extreme sterility and desolation in these dreary regions, that we can scarcely imagine any mortal who would be hardy as to make them even a temporary abode. Yet here did four Russian mariners, who were accidentally left on this frozen coast in the year 1743, live six years, one excepted, till happily released by the arrival of a ship. In 1633, seven Dutch sailors were voluntarily left here to pass the winter, and to make their remarks, but they all perished from the effects of the scurvy. In the following year, seven more self-devoted victims of the same nation underwent a similar fate, yet all these adventurous men had been liberally provided with medicines, and every necessary for the preservation of life. Eight Englishmen, left by accident in the same country in 1650, were far more fortunate. Unprovided with everything, they contrived, however, to frame a hut of some old materials, and were found by the returning ships the next year in perfect health. The Russians have lately attempted to colonize these dreadful islands. They have annually sent parties to continue there the whole year, who have established settlements at Spitsbergen and other places adjacent, where they have built huts, each of which is occupied by two boats' crews or twenty-six men. They bring with them salted fish, rye flour, and the serum or whey of sour milk. The whey is their chief beverage, and is also used in baking their bread. Each hut has an oven which serves also as a stove, and their fuel is wood which they bring with them from Archangel. Their huts are above ground and surprisingly warm. They boil their fish with water and rye meal. This is their winter diet. In summer, they live chiefly on fowls or their eggs. They are dressed in the skins of the bear or the reindeer, with the fur side next their bodies. Their bedding, likewise, is formed of the same. The skin of the fox, which is the most valuable, is preserved as an article of commerce. They have also other employment beside the chase in catching, with nets, the beluga or white whale. Few of them die from the severity of the cold, but they are often frostbitten, so as to lose their toes or fingers, for they are so hardy as to hunt in all weathers. They are at liberty to leave the place by the 22nd of September, whether they are relieved by a fresh party from Russia or not. The great exercise they use, their vegetable food, their method of freshening their salt provision by boiling it in water and mixing it with flour, their beverage of whey, and their total abstinence from spiritous liquors are the happy preservatives from the scurvy, which brought all the preceding adventurers who perished to their miserable end. Sledges As sledges are much used in the northern countries, we shall briefly describe those used in Holland, Lapland, and Kamchatka. These carriages are without wheels, and are frequently appropriated for carrying large weights, as huge stones, bells, etc., etc. 
The sledge on which a criminal is taken to the place of execution is called a hurdle, but in cold countries sledges are substituted for wheel carriages, being more convenient for travelling on the ice and over the boundless snows. Dutch Sledges By the polite laws of Amsterdam, wheel carriages are limited to a certain number, which is very inconsiderable compared with the size of the city, from an apprehension that an uncontrolled use of them might hazard the foundation of the houses, most of which are built upon piles, for nearly the whole of the ground on which this vast city stands was formerly a morass. A carriage, called by the Dutch a sleigh and by the French a traineau, is used in their room. It is the body of a coach fastened by ropes on a sledge, and drawn by one horse. The driver walks by the side of it, which he holds with one hand to prevent its falling over, and with the other the reins. Nothing can be more melancholy than this machine, which holds four persons, moves at the rate of about three miles an hour, and seems more like the equipage of a hospital than a vehicle in which the observer would expect to find a merry face, yet in this manner do the Dutch frequently pay visits and take the air. Dogs are frequently employed in Holland to draw light sledges fitted for the conveyance of provisions, etc., to a short distance. In Holland, according to Mr. Pratt, there is not an idle dog of any material size to be seen in the whole seven provinces. You see them in harness at all parts of the Hague, as well as in other towns, tugging at sledges or little carts with their tongue nearly sweeping the ground, and their poor palpitating hearts almost beating through their sides. Frequently three, four, five, or sometimes six abreast, drawing men and merchandise with the speed of little horses. On passing from Hague Gate to Scheveling, you perceive at any hour of the day an incredible number loaded with fish and men, under the burden of which they run off at a long trot, and sometimes at full gallop, the whole mile and half, which is the precise distance from gate to gate. Nor on their return are they suffered to come with their sledges empty, being filled not only with the men and boys before mentioned, but with such commodities as are marketable at the village. This writer further adds that it is no uncommon thing in the middle of summer to see these poor, patient, persevering animals urged and driven beyond their utmost ability till they drop down on the road. Ship Sledges The Dutch have also a kind of sledge on which they can carry a vessel of any burden by land. It consists of a plank of the length of a keel of a moderate ship, raised a little behind, and hollow in the middle, so that the sides go up a little slope and are furnished with holes to receive pins, etc. The rest is quite even. Lapland Sledges These carriages are extremely light and elegant, and are covered at the bottom with the skin of the reindeer. They are yoked to the sledge by a collar, from which a trace is brought under the belly, between the legs, and fastened to the forepart of the machine. The person who sits in it guides the animal with a cord fastened to its horns. He drives it with a goad and encourages it with his voice. Those of the wild breed, though by far the strongest, often prove refractory, and not only refuse to obey their masters, but turn against him and strike so furiously with their feet that his only resource is to cover himself with his sledge, upon which the enraged creature vents his fury. The tame deer, on the contrary, is patient, active, and willing. When hard pushed, the reindeer will trot the distance of sixty miles without stopping, but in such exertions the poor obedient creature fatigues itself so exceedingly that its master is frequently obliged to kill it immediately, to prevent a lingering death that would ensue. In general, they can go thirty miles without stopping, and that without any great or dangerous effort. Obsequious at their call, the docile tribe yield to the sled their necks and whirl them swift, o'er hill and dale heaped into one expanse of marbled snow as far as I can sweep, with a blue crust of ice unbounded glazed. Sledges in Kamchatka The only method of travelling in this dreary country during the winter is, drawn on a sledge by the strong, nimble, and active dogs of the country. 
they travel with great expedition. Captain King relates that during his stay there, a courier with dispatches drawn by them performed a journey of 270 miles in less than four days. The sledges are usually drawn by five dogs, four of them yoked two and two abreast. The foremost acts as a leader to the rest. The reins being fastened to a collar round the leading dog's neck are of little use in directing the pack, the driver depending chiefly on their obedience to his voice, with which he animates them to proceed. Great care and attention are consequently used in training up for those leaders, which are more valuable according to their steadiness and docility. The sum of 40 rubles or 9 pounds being no unusual price for them, the rider has a crooked stick answering the purpose of both whip and reins, with which, by striking on the snow, he regulates the speed of the dogs, or stops them at his pleasure. When they are inattentive to their duty, he often chastises them by throwing it at them. He discovers great dexterity in regaining his stick, which is the greatest difficulty attending his situation, for, if he should happen to lose it, the dogs immediately discover the circumstance and never fail to set off at full speed and continue to run till their strength is exhausted or till the carriage is overturned and dashed to pieces or hurried down a precipice. End of chapter 5 Recording by Lewis Fletcher